Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Um, We're carrying on with Ephesians, artisan faith. And if you're anything like me, you will um, believe that there are four different groups of people in the world. The first group of people are the great ones. The ones that you just get on with no matter what. My brother is coming to visit in a few weeks' time, and when we see each other, we will just, it will be like no time has passed at all. We will just click straight away. We will get on with each other. We will finish each other's sandwiches. We will just get each other's jokes. It, it's going to be, it, it doesn't matter how long it's been, we will still click. The, the great people, the people you just feel completely comfortable with. First group of people. Second group of people. Uh, they're civil, they're nice, you kind of, you know, you can have dinner with them, but it's, you know, it's never going to be a great friendship forever and ever. It's a bit of work, but they're, they're okay. Third group of people, people, it does not matter what you do or say, they just don't like you, and you just don't like them. It doesn't matter. I have one person in mind. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what they say. It just doesn't work. It'd be best if we just left each other alone. And then, fourth group of people, uh uh-oh. Whether you're right or left, liberal or conservative, the people who are at the other end of the spectrum, or psychopaths, as I like to call them. (laughs) I am going there. Oh, yes. Forgive me, I'm British. But we are going to talk about this, because you may or may not be aware there's quite a lot of hostility in this country right now. People are very angry with each other, and that includes Christians. There is actually, and I'm going to go as far as to say this, a lot of hatred of other Christians amongst Christians in this country, and that's leaving aside all the people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. This is not a good thing. Why is it like this? Does it have to be like this? And what as we... Uh, what As Christians, are we going to think and, more importantly, do about it? And even more importantly, what does God think about it and what is he doing? Just light stuff again for a Sunday morning. But these are very important questions and ones that we have to be able to ask. So as we carry on the series in Ephesians, we're getting right to the heart of this letter. And I think this is timely, given what's going on in this country and across the world, because he goes some way to addressing these questions. Let's read chapter 2, starting at verse 11 together. I don't mean together. I mean, I'm going to read it. You can listen. You can follow it. (laughs) Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become one holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thank the Lord for his word, right? It's good stuff. But the first thing to note is that there is, and there always will be, this side of Jesus' return, hostility in the world. It was there at the beginning, it's here now, it will be here until Jesus returns. During the Enlightenment in the 18th century, in the sort of heart of Europe, philosophical thought, for the first time, was sort of freed from religious and societal norms. And it really dominated the whole world. And a huge amount of good was achieved in terms of specifically um, scientific advance. And the general consensus at that time amongst philosophers is the world is really finally getting better. We are finally developing uh, our minds and our intellects, and things are going to be great. And then the First World War happened. And then the Second World War happened. And then the Holocaust came to light. And it was pretty hard to say humanity's really getting better. It looks like it's getting a lot worse. The truth is, now, pretty much no philosopher would agree that humanity is evolving and getting better. We're staying the same. Capable of incredible goodness. Extraordinary things. And also deeply dark, distorted, deathly things. It suggests, therefore, that an evolution of the mind, a change of beliefs, whilst important, obviously, because the truth is very important, won't ultimately heal the world. But it is very important, a point which we will come back to. The reality is, people in this country are deeply divided, as they are around the world. People even, as I said, hate each other. And the Bible knows this well. And so we should not be surprised what's going on. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be shocked or appalled or distressed or grieved or angry. I think we should be all of those things. Nor am I saying that we should resign ourselves to some sort of cynicism, becoming just deeply cynical about the whole world. It's never going to change, so there's no point even interacting with it. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because the world is a hostile place. The question is, why? Why do people have such hostility towards each other? Now, obviously, there are a million different answers to that question. In fact, there are probably as many combinations of reasons as there are, and there have been, individual conflicts in the world. And they will all be down to things like a sense of injustice has been perpetrated, a need for retribution, a degree of anger that can't be resolved, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of communication, a lack of empathy, or a million and other, um, other things. I'm sure that's obvious, 
But here, Paul, in this letter, is talking about something more fundamental, fundamental to every conflict that has ever existed, every sense of anger, every sense of injustice. And this is what I would call the glorification of distinction. It's the attitude that says, I'm proud that I'm not like you. I glory, in fact, in the fact that what distinguishes from me from you, in my mind, makes me a lot better than you. I am better than you because I'm not like you. Ever felt like that before? In the case of the Gentiles and the Jews that Paul is speaking to, this is what the Jewish law had become for the people of Israel. Something to glorify in. Something to separate other people off from. Something which allows them to look down on those who don't have it. Verse 14, this is the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, the law, with its command, commands and regulations. Verse 12, this is what excludes the Gentiles from citizenship. The thing is, it was never supposed to, and this is an important point for us to grasp, because Christians can often um, caricature the Jewish people and their uh, appreciation of the law and what the law was supposed to do. The law was a gift from God. It is a good thing. It is a glorious thing. It is a beautiful thing. It was a gift of God to the people of Israel. It was a sign of love. You are my people, and this shows that you are. It is a a barrier marking. It is saying, you are the ones I have chosen. I am yours. You are mine. Nothing's going to stop that. And so now, and this is the important thing, go and take that blessing and give it to the rest of the world, everyone outside, the blessing that I have given to you. But the problem is the law had become more important, the gift had become more important than the giver. And so if you combine that with a whole host of Gentile oppression from the beginning, it's easy for Israel then to go, well, this is what makes us special and we are dividing ourselves off from you. It was never supposed to be like that, though. The Pharisee in Luke's Gospel praised this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I thank you that I am better. I glory in my distinction. But the problem is, this is not just specific to Jews and Gentiles. The book of Ephesians is extraordinary in that it's not actually written to one particular church. It is written to the whole church. The idea is, Paul is writing this to to the church in Ephesus for them to pass on to every other church because it's talking about cosmic, universal, huge things. And so whilst he talks about Jews and Gentiles, the, the point is, this is something that permeates every aspect of life. We separate ourselves off, and what Jesus has done is he's come to destroy the barriers. But it means that we can all be, whoever we are, ensnared by this desire to separate ourselves off from other people. We can take something good or bad, but even good, even a gift of God, say, and something to be glorified in, but we can glorify in it, it in ourselves to make us feel better than someone else, whether it's our knowledge or our intellect, our taste, our achievements, our political beliefs, our talents, our beauties, whatever. We can take something intrinsically good and use it to make ourselves feel better and actually use it for destructive purposes. 
I want to tell you a small story um, to illustrate this point, uh, which won't make you like me more. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> so this is a completely true story. When I was um, about 15, I was infatuated by this girl. I couldn't stop thinking about her the whole time. When I saw her, my heart started beating. I ended up doing odd things around her because I was so nervous. I was in love. And we started dating for a while, and it was amazing. And then, in the summer, she sent me a letter. This is how old I am, an actual letter written on, <laughs> on a piece of paper. And uh, I was reading this letter, and the problem was, throughout the letter, she'd said, she'd spelt your, your, when she meant your. <laughs> and I'm reading this letter, and I saw the first one, I said, oh, fair enough, you know, it's just a mistake. And then I'm reading through and through and through and go, it says your, she means you are, she said your, over and over again. And as I'm reading this, I'm going, I can feel all this love and infatuation sinking out of me. <laughs> How could she do this? She spelt your, your. She meant you are. As I said, it doesn't make you like me more, right? She's, it's not a problem with her, it's a problem with me. But all of a sudden, by the end of this one letter, I'd gone, I don't love her anymore. <laughs> I'm not interested anymore. But what I was doing was going, you're actually not good enough for me. Deeply unchristian. I see myself as better than you. So destructive. It's a silly example, but you get the point. And we all do it from time to time. If you don't believe me, just bring to mind someone you know who is at the other end of the political spectrum to you right now. Or has wildly opposing views to you about such things as women, homosexuals, immigration, abortion, health care, tax, the presidential use of Twitter. <laughs> do it now. Bring it to mind. Bring that person to mind or those people to mind. What do you feel? They might be very close to you. That will make the feeling all the more pertinent. Now, I am not talking here about the rightness and wrongness of people's beliefs. You may well be 100% purely right about these things. You may be currently fighting with people, and beyond no shadow of a doubt, you are 100% entirely right. The people in your mind may have deeply distorted views about all these things, deeply destructive views, but I'm not talking about rightness and wrongness, and I'm not also talking about action or inaction. Your frustration with people who may believe the right things, but they're just not doing enough about it, or they're not doing it in, in the right way. I'm not talking about rightness and wrongness, inaction, or action, I'm talking about your attitude towards those people. What do they make you feel? Do you thank God that you're not like them? Or more subtly, do you say, I cannot understand 
how you can be like that, how you can think like that, which actually means I cannot be bothered to work out why you think like that or why you can be like that. Because I'm sure I'm better and you're wrong. The glorification of distinction. It's the barrier that exists in every conflict. And all around the world, and particularly in this country, there are people who are hating each other. But this is what happens. Verse 14. Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This is the answer to the question, what does God think about everything that's going on right now and what is he doing about it? What he thinks about it is this will not do, this barrier, and what he's doing about it is what he's already done. He's destroyed it. He has destroyed it once and for all. He's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. He's destroyed our need to look down on other people, to glory in our distinction, to be pleased we're not like other people. He's destroyed it all. It's what he's done. When Jesus dies on the cross, in his body, verse 14, he reconciles both Jews and Gentiles, which actually means everyone. He reconciles everyone to himself. Everyone who wants it. He kills off pride. He kills off idolatry. He kills off I am superior to you because he is the only superior one, the perfect one, the only one who can do it. That's what happens at the cross. It does not matter whether we are very near, like the Jewish people with their law and their history and their prayers and their temple, or very far off, like the Gentiles, with their immorality and their skewed beliefs and their darkness and their war, because we're all so far away, it doesn't matter at all. It's like we're a million miles away and a billion miles away, it's still very far away. Jesus is the only one so close from the bosom of the Father that can actually destroy all the walls. And that's what he does on the cross and he gives everyone access to his Father by his Spirit. You see, what Jesus does is he goes after all of us, our whole beings, body, mind, and spirit. And therefore, that is where the solution lies, in our whole selves, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. It's not just our mind. although the mind is very important. And so I want to talk about two applications, something that we can do and something that we can't do. Firstly, the mind, what we can do. There is a fantastic talk that has just been released on... Uh, it's a TED talk. It was released about a month ago, I think. It's called this, I grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church, Here's Why I Left, by a woman called Megan Phelps uh, Roper. I highly recommend it. 15 minutes of your life. It's very worth uh, sitting down and listening to. It's slightly brutal. I'm going to quote some of it. Um, but it starts like this. I was a blue-eyed, chubby-cheeked five-year-old when I joined my family on the picket line for the first time. My mum made me leave my dolls in the minivan. I'd stand on a street corner in the heavy Kansas humidity, surrounded by a few dozen relatives, with my tiny fists clutching a sign that I couldn't yet read. Gays are worthy of death. Now, this talk goes on to reveal that Megan then joined Twitter to have more people for whom she could kind of um, get her message of hate out to. And having joined Twitter, various people then sort of sent the hate back to her. But after a while, 
she found that people started engaging in actual conversations with her, rather than just spewing the hate back and forth. And this is what she said. There was no confusion about our positions, but the line between friend and foe was becoming blurred. We started to see each other as human beings, and it changed the way we spoke to one another. It took time, but eventually these conversations planted seeds of doubt in me. My friends on Twitter took the time to understand Westboro's doctrines, and in doing so, they were able to find inconsistencies I'd missed my whole entire life. The truth is that the care shown to me by these strangers on the internet was itself a contradiction, because it was growing evidence that people on the other side were not the demons I'd been led to believe. These realizations were life-altering. And she means that, because she ends up being able to extricate herself from Westboro and ultimately, and this is the amazing thing, happily marrying one of the people who had engaged with her on Twitter kindly, intelligently, and rationally, and changed her beliefs, changed her mind about things. And what's interesting, and this is the thing that we can do, point number one, the thing that we can do, she highlights these traits that was consistent across everyone who engaged with her. The first is, do not assume bad intent. Assuming ill motives almost instantly cuts us off from truly understanding why someone does and believes what they do. We forget that they're human, and we forget that they bring a lifetime of experiences and knowledge and things that have happened to them to the table when they say things. Secondly, ask questions. We cannot present effective arguments if we don't understand actually where people are coming from, what they actually believe. And asking questions also has the beauty of helping someone feel like they're actually being listened to because they are being listened to. <laughs> Thirdly, stay calm. This takes time and practice. If you're married, you may understand this. Stay calm, walk out the room. Often we think our rightness justifies us hurling insults and saying things with no grace or love at all, because we're right! <laughs> come back, walk away, come back with something better prepared, more reasonable, because finally, make the argument. Make the argument. Now, this may seem obvious, but sometimes we assume the value of our positions is so intrinsically self-evident that we don't even need to argue. They, if they don't understand, it's because it's their problem. It's not. It's your problem. You haven't made a proper argument. Convince people, which means tell them what you believe in a cogent and proper argument. But also, make it persuasive. There's no value in just being right. There's value in people changing their minds because you've done all those steps. We have to engage with this, because do you know what those four things sound like? What they sound like to me is Jesus Christ and his interaction with all the people who hate him. He shows grace. He shows compassion. He stays calm and brings his peace but he doesn't shirk away from the life-altering power of the truth.
what it doesn't sound like is responding to violence with a corresponding amount of violence so that the cycle just gets turned over and over again. It also does not sound like passivity or powerlessness in the face of abuse and injustice. Yeah, just ride right roughshod over me. I'll be okay, I'm a Christian. It sounds like a very different kind of powerful response, rooted in goodness, rooted in subversion. It sounds like Jesus' constant interactions with people. I am changing the way things are going to happen. I am changing your beliefs because I am here to change them. It takes courage. It means that Jesus gets hung up on a cross. It takes courage. It also takes a refusal to demonize or degrade people that we don't believe, with, believe uh, the same things as. And it also takes this powerful, godly creativity to make something beautiful and great out of what is, let's be honest, a pretty horrible mess right now. That's what you can do. And we as Christians have to choose to be more like this. We have to choose to be more like this because it's being more like Jesus. What we can do. Unfortunately, though, this is the point I want to return to and I'm going to finish with. It's amazing. It changes people's minds. But it's not enough. Because it doesn't go to the root of the problem, the root that Paul is talking about here. I know that this story, as well as other stories, are emotive and emotional, but ultimately what they are saying is change your beliefs, change your mind, think differently, and then we will have peace. And culture has always thought this. Look to educate, and then meet the people you despise, change the, their beliefs about things, and, and you will see everything come to be better. Now, obviously, this is highly important. We have to do this. And you can see that it does actually, in the case of the woman from Westboro, change people's lives. But ultimately, it does not. And this is the thing that we have, that Jesus has given us. It doesn't get to the heart of the problem. It does not get right to the heart. Because what Jesus goes for on the cross is not just our minds. He goes for our whole selves. He goes for our whole identity. And therefore, he creates not a new group of people, a new special group of people called Christians. He's not just shifting the problem or replicating. We once had Jews and Gentiles who can't get on, and now I've created a third group who hates both of them, or even hate each other. He's not doing that. Instead, what he does is this. Verse 15. He creates in himself one new humanity, out of the two, thus making peace. By his death and resurrection, he is not making a new group out of Jews and Gentiles. He's making a whole new humanity. And if you're a Christian, you'll have experienced something of this, the bond that comes from people with a shared experience of Jesus and his new humanity that we share, a sense that comes from forgiveness, knowing that actually... We haven't got it all together, that we're falling apart. But Jesus forgives it all. He wipes us clean. And we bond with people over that because we're all the same. We've let the guard down, we've let Jesus in, and he is changing us and we need it. We'll have experienced it too from a shared experience of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit filling our lives. I remember being on a um, weekend away um, the, the, experience, uh, the experience of God was sort of the theme of this. 
And this guy came along who'd never been to anything before. I think the only reason he came is because he had nothing, literally nothing to do that weekend. He thought, I'll go on a Christian weekend. He wasn't a Christian. And he, he, he went on this weekend, and the Holy Spirit touched him in such a powerful way that he instantly became a Christian. It was one of those extraordinary times. He's writhing around on the floor, and he's just going, wow, like, wow, wow, who is this Jesus? Tell me about him. I want to meet him. I want this to be my life. And he became a Christian that moment. But the thing is, he was going, is the, am I the only one that this has ever happened to? Because otherwise, I think I've been tricked, or this is a bit weird. And we met in the pub, and we were chatting, and I just told him about my experiences of the Holy Spirit, I told him about other people's experience of the Holy Spirit. He goes, oh, it's just the same as mine. Wow. <laughs> you guys are the same. It's amazing, isn't it? I feel incredible love and forgiveness and, and freedom and hope. And this is amazing. And, and I'm not the only one. This is what Jesus does. When he creates a new humanity, he's not creating a new group to hate people, to be different from other people. He is creating something completely, utterly different otherworldly. Because this new humanity involves a new identity. And this is where we see the end of the glorification of our distinction. We see an end to the barriers. Verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. We don't get to have our identity being dependent on our distinction from other people anymore because we have been all adopted into a new family. We don't get to choose our earthly families and we don't get to choose our heavenly families. It's such a nightmare, isn't it? Look around. These people are your brothers and sisters. How annoying. I wouldn't choose any of you. I'm just saying that. I don't even know you. But Jesus has adopted all of us, so this is who we are. And this is actually what we cannot do. We can change our minds and our beliefs to be more like Jesus's. We can also engage with other people in all the ways that I've said to change their minds and their beliefs to be more like Jesus's. It's very important. We as a church have to engage in this. I mean this as a global church. And I say this because I would not be surprised at what happened in mainland Europe could happen here in this country, which is a whole generation after generation after generation leave the church, not because of what it stands for, but because of what it stands against. So we, as Christians, have to engage with that problem. Otherwise, the church is going to die. I'm not trying to be doomsaying. This happened in the UK. The church is an irrelevance there because it failed to actually engage with where culture was. The gospel never changes. It's the power of God. I'm going to come on to that in a minute. But culture is constantly changing, and we have to stay close to the gospel but engage with people. Otherwise, they're going to go, church, irrelevant, or church, just bad. We can do that. What we cannot do is change our hearts. Only Jesus can do that. And this is the fundamental issue at play in this passage Jesus has come to change your heart. He has come to change your whole being. The real problem here is we cannot do this either to ourselves or to other people as much as we'd like to. I would love 
to be able to change other people's hearts now and again. But we can't. I've tried. <laughs> I've tried, particularly with my children. <laughs> Only Jesus can do that. Verse 22, in which I'm going to finish. We must engage with being built, being built constantly, present continuous. It's a process going on, being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is about you and no one else. Allow him to change you from the inside out. How on earth can you bring justice and love and forgiveness to a broken world, to broken people, to a broken political system, to a broken church, if you're not receiving it from the source? I'm going to tell you, you can't. You can't receive it from the source and be transformed into his likeness so that the world might be changed. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.